Before we get started this morning, I wanted to uh, just let you know about an opportunity that's coming up. Um, it has to do with a, a film that's coming out. And the filmmaker is uh, a member here at Wooddale Church, Tim Mahoney. It's the Moses Controversy. It's going to be out in the theaters locally March 14th, 16th, and 19th. You know, there are a lot of people that don't believe Moses was an actual person. The exodus really didn't happen. And uh, Tim uh, has done a, a fantastic job of putting together scholars and evidence to show quite the opposite. And I encourage you to go to strengthen your faith and also to take a skeptical friend, have coffee afterwards, and talk about what you see and hear. You can go to the website, PatternsOfEvidence.com, and find out more about it. But uh, it will be well worth your time. And I just want to promote things like that that... Uh, can help strengthen our faith and help reach others for Christ. So I uh, want to share that with you. Now we're back in our series, Rethink, where we are learning how to think like Jesus by his help and by his strength. There's a lot of things we need to change our mind on. And as we begin this morning, I have a, I have a riddle to share with you. It's one of my favorite riddles. Let's see if you can figure out the answer. The riddle goes like this. Twelve pairs hanging high, twelve knights riding by, each took a pair, left 11 hanging there. How can that possibly be? Now, if you know the answer to that, keep it to yourself. If you don't know the answer to that, don't Google it. <laughs> Think about it, because it's staring you in the face, the answer. We'll come back to it a little bit later on. Some of you are wondering to yourself, Pastor, did you like have way too much time on your hands for the message this weekend? And the answer is no, I didn't. But uh, after studying the passage extensively, I thought, you know, uh, this passage is just filled with all kinds of riddles. And to get us in the mood, I wanted to kind of throw that in front of you. For instance, if you turn now to our passages this weekend, Mark chapter 11 and Mark chapter 12, you will discover that there is a controversy. The enemies of Jesus, the religious leaders, the high council, leading leaders, priests, scholars, they're all trying to trap Jesus. They're all trying to get him in a situation where they can disprove him, silence him, and get rid of him. But right now, they are so angry at him, they're so mad at him, that they make this demand of him in verse 28 of Mark chapter 11, says they demanded, by what authority are you doing all these things? Who gave you the right to do them? You say, well, what are all these things? All these things are mentioned in verse 15 and verse 16. In verse 15 and 16, Jesus shows up at the temple and he starts turning tables over the money changers. Another gospel says he fashioned a cord of whips and was, you know, you know coming at them like this. I mean, it was mayhem. He just created all kinds of trouble and chased the people out. And in verse 17, he stated, The scriptures declare, My temple will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have turned it into a den of thieves. That didn't go over too well. What does he mean, my house? The religious leaders believed it was their house. See, it was God's house. Yeah, but it was really their house. They controlled access to God. They controlled the sacrifices. They controlled the law, taught the law. So in a sense, they felt great ownership and great authority that, that went with that. Who's Jesus to show up and try to take over and shove them out of the way? Didn't make them very happy. By what authority are you doing that? So Jesus says to them, and here's kind of our first little kind of riddle. 
He says to them, I'll tell you by what authority I do this. If you tell me by what authority John baptized, was it authority from God or authority from man? And it tells us the passage in verse 31 that they all kind of huddled up, began discussing the answer to the question. And they realized that they say it was authority from God, then he's going to ask them, then why didn't you listen to John? And if they say, no, his authority was human made, it's just John, he's a charismatic person, then the crowds will turn against them, which they desperately don't want to have happen, because the crowds felt that John was a prophet. So they just stand there like this. Have you ever been asked a question? How many of you are parents? You ever have your kids just stand there like this when you ask them a question? They don't want to answer, right? Because they don't want to be incriminated by the answer. So Jesus says, you won't tell me, I won't tell you. But he did tell them a story in chapter 12. He borrows this imagery from Isaiah 5. He says, there once was a vineyard owner who rented out his vineyard to some tenants. And every year he would go and he would collect his share of the profit. This year he sent a servant to get his share of the profit. And they beat the servant and sent him back empty-handed. And so the owner kept sending servant after servant after servant who was either beaten or killed until finally there are no servants left to send and all he has is his son whom he loves. So he sends his son with the attitude, certainly they will respect my son and, and give him the profit that's due to me. So in this story, Jesus says these tenants see the son coming. And they get this idea in their mind. They say, let's kill the son. Let's kill him and then the vineyard will be ours. Verse 8, so they grabbed him and murdered him and threw his body out of the vineyard. So Jesus asks them a question in verse 9. He says, what do you suppose the owner of the vineyard will do? I imagine they just kind of stood there silent. I'll tell you, he will come and kill those farmers and lease the vineyard to others. (gasps) That didn't go over too well. These guys aren't stupid. They know that Jesus is saying they are the tenants. He is the son. The father has sent him. How dare he insinuate that, that this is actually true? How dare he liken them to this? And who are the others that he's going to give it to? Gentiles, the church. We know that later on. Jesus adds another little riddle on top of it from Psalm 118. He says, did you ever hear or read this in the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it's wonderful to see. Now let's understand the imagery here. The ancient days, especially in Jerusalem, everything's built on these massive rocks. They call it Jerusalem stone. It's beautiful. And the masons, when they were building a building, they would go through the quarry. They would look at all kinds of rocks. They would, they would reject this rock. They'd reject that rock until they finally found one that had the right lines, the right face. And that would become the rock by which the rest of the building, the stone by which the rest of the building took its integrity. It had to have the right lines, the right face. Jesus, in essence, is saying, look, the stone is here. I'm here. But rather than using me, you reject me. You're looking for a different way. And we understand that beautifully when we look at Peter's sermon 
or his, I should say, Peter's words to the very same council in Acts chapter 4. Because Peter would have been here that day and it must have finally dawned on him. Because in Acts 4 verse 11 he says, For Jesus is the one referred to in the scripture where it says, The stone that you builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. Now look, here's the meaning. Verse 12. There is salvation in no one else. God has given no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. The law won't save you. The temple won't save you. Ritual tradition won't save you. A priest can't save you. But the high priest can, Jesus himself. And you guys are rejecting me. Well, Jesus had put it all out there and none of them had been able to resolve his riddles or none of them wanted to resolve the riddles. So they decided that they would throw some riddles at Jesus. They'd put some puzzles in front of him that would trap him, that would turn the people against him, that would give them the right to accuse him and have him arrested and silence him once and for all. And they thought they were pretty smart. They thought they were pretty smart. So the first riddle comes by way of some Pharisees who approach him. And I, I kind of like, it's just sickening. It makes me want to throw up. But uh, just, just look at how they handle this, all right? Was that too graphic, too close to lunch? Verse 14, okay? Are you guys there? All right, he's just so engrossed. He's trying to figure out that riddle. Teacher, they said, we know how honest you are. You're impartial and don't play favorites. You teach the way of God truthfully. Does that make you want to gag? Do you think they really mean that? And they're just trying to chum up with Jesus, right? Now, tell us. Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or shouldn't we? You know, in a modern way, you can see these guys kind of high-fiving each other, at least low fives. We got them. We got him. We, got the, we have the ultimate question. We have the ultimate trap. Because if he says, yes, you should pay taxes to Caesar, the people will hate his guts because they hate Caesar and they hate paying taxes. People still hate paying taxes today, don't we? On the other hand, if he says, no, don't pay taxes to Caesar, we'll go right to Rome and we'll tell the Romans he's advocating people not paying their taxes. That'll get him arrested. He will be in deep weeds. We'll have him off our case. But Jesus is pretty smart, if you notice that. Jesus replied and said, why are you guys trying to trap me? Show me a Roman coin, and I'll tell you the answer. Verse 16, he says, he asks, whose picture and title are stamped on it? Caesar's, they replied. Now, literally, we know this from archaeology, that on that coin was Augustus Tiberius, son of the divine Augustus. In other words, son of God, emperor worship. And on the backside, it said high priest. So he's also the leader of the emperor cult. If Rome wanted to insult the Jews, this was quite the insult. Jews who are not supposed to have any graven image are walking around with these coins in their pockets that have the image of the emperor on it, and he's called the son of God, the high priest. Then it get worse than that. So Jesus responds to them in verse 17. He says, well, then give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and give to God what belongs to God. Now, something you and I need to understand about that. When Jesus says that, remember this is an oral culture. They they understand a lot from stories. They they remember a lot from their past because it gets repeated over and over and over again to this very day. 
When Jesus said those words, give to Caesar what's Caesar's and give to God what is God's, it would remind them of something that was said 200 years earlier when the Maccabees liberated Jerusalem from the grip of Antiochus Epiphanes and the Syrians. And the Maccabean hero said in 1 Maccabees 2.68, pay back to the Gentiles what is due them, but obey the law of God. N.T. Wright, the theologian, says, in essence, what Jesus was saying was, give the filth back to the Gentiles is contemptuous. Keep to the worship of God and the law of God. And I'm telling you what, doesn't say it happened, but I can imagine the crowd just cheering. Just cheering. That's right. This is idolatrous. This is filth. Give it back to them. We're God's people. We're going to worship God. And I tell you what, these guys were just... They, they were beside themselves. They thought they had Jesus. And it says his reply completely amazed them. It's like, we weren't expecting that. And in fact, we hadn't even thought about that. Rats foiled again. <laughs> then they sent in the bigwigs, the professors, the Sadducees, who were the aristocrats, who chummed it up with Rome quite a bit, who only believed in the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and therefore did not believe in the resurrection after the dead because they didn't think it's mentioned in the first five books of the Bible. They, they just were convinced they had Jesus. Pharisees, those guys are, are, are little league. We've got Jesus. So they approached Jesus and they said, there's a law there's a law that says that if a woman marries a man and a man dies, she has no son as an heir, then the next of kin, the brother, must marry her and help her produce a child, a male child, so that the name is carried on. Well, there was this woman, they said, who married this man, and before they could conceive, he died. So she married his brother, and he died, and she married the next brother, and he died. There are seven brothers. She married all seven, and they all died. Then she dies. Now she's in heaven. Which one's her husband? High five. Got him. Yeah, right? We got him on this one. I love the way Jesus responds to them in verse 24. Your mistake, he says, is that you don't know the scriptures. Don't you love Jesus? Like, I would say, go, Jesus. Your mistake is that you don't know the scriptures and you don't know the power of God. And then he goes on and he talks about the power of God first. And this, you know, this is helpful for you and me to understand our future. I talked about this a couple years ago in a series that did on heaven. So, but I can't elaborate on it here. But Jesus says, you think that when you die, and sometimes maybe we have the same false notion that that. The resurrection is just simply a matter of living in eternity the way we live now, in these mortal bodies we have now the way we are now. And that's not true. The resurrection body, though it's you, is much different. He says, in this way, we will all be like the angels. There will neither be marriage nor given in marriage. Our mindset, our bodies, our hormones, everything will be different, changed. But then he says this. He says, as far as the resurrection goes, you guys really don't know your scriptures. He takes them to Exodus chapter 3, verse 6, and he talks about how God introduces himself to Moses. Right there it is in verse 26 at the end. 
God said to Moses, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. So he is the God of the living, not the dead. You have made a serious error. <laughs> no more high fives. I mean, Jesus is just outscoring these guys big time. They can't solve his riddles. Actually, they don't want to. And every time they think they're going to stump Jesus, he proves them wrong. There was this religious man, though, that who was listening. And uh, he was fascinated by all this. And so he approached Jesus a different way. He said to Jesus, or he asked Jesus, you know, there's 613 commandments. What do they all boil down to? Like, is there a command that kind of sums them all up? In verse 29, Jesus responded. He said, the most important commandment is this. Listen, O Israel, the Lord our God is the one and only Lord. And you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. That is wholeheartedly. Then he says, the second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. No other commandment is greater than these. Love God wholeheartedly and love others the way you would want to be loved. The teacher of religious law replied, wow, teacher, you have spoken the truth by saying that there is only one God and no other. And I know it is important to love him with all my heart and all my understanding and all my strength and to love my neighbor as myself. This is more important than to offer all of the burnt offerings and sacrifices required in the law. Realizing how much the man understood, Jesus said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared ask him any more questions. Would you want to? But you know what's fascinating to me is how you could be so close to the right answer and not see it. How it could be staring you in the face and you don't even notice it. The Son of God, the Messiah, is standing right there in front of them. Even his own disciples still haven't quite figured it out yet. And won't until the resurrection. And I think about so many people, I think about even us sometimes, God is staring us right in the face. And it's like we look right past him. And we can't see it. We can't figure it out. Why is that? Why is that the case here? We're about to find out. We keep on reading. Jesus throws another riddle at them. Since late in the temple, Jesus was teaching the people, and I assume the leaders are all listening in, because they always seem to want to be around and know what he was up to. His disciples certainly are listening. And he says, why do the teachers of religious law claim that the Messiah is the son of David? Because that's what he is. He's the son of David in human lineage. He says, for David himself, speaking under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit in the place of honor at my right hand until I humble your enemies beneath your feet. Verse 37, since David himself called the Messiah my Lord, how can the Messiah be his son? Silence. In other words, if, as you claim, the Messiah is the son of David. How can he also be David's Lord before David even existed? Unless he's the son of God, and nobody wanted to admit that. A large crowd listened to him with great delight. I guarantee you his enemies listened with murderous rage. Now watch what happens in verse 38. 
Jesus also taught, now this is the crowd, the disciples, beware of these teachers of religious law. Now when he says beware of them, it's put in such a way in the Greek, the language that's used there literally means turn your back on these religious leaders. Don't listen to them. Don't follow their example. That had to infuriate people, huh? The leaders. He says, turn your back on these religious leaders, for they like to parade around in flowing robes and receive respectful greetings as they walk in the marketplaces. And how they love the seats of honor in the synagogues and the head tables at banquets. Yet they shamelessly cheat widows out of their own property, or another way of translating it is, they devour the households of widows. And they pretend to be pious by making long prayers in public. Because of this, they will be more severely punished. And then what happens next doesn't seem to fit. Let me show you what I mean. Verse 41. Jesus sat down near the collection box. There were actually uh, trumpet-shaped vessels throughout the temple area. Jesus sat down near the collection box of the temple and watched as the crowds dropped in their money. Many rich people, a lot of the priests, religious leaders were rich, put in large amounts. Then a poor widow came and dropped in two small coins. Tink, tink. Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I'll tell you the truth, this poor widow has given more than all the others who are making contributions. For they gave a tiny part of the surplus but she, poor as she is, has given everything she had to live on. Now, that story doesn't seem to fit there. I mean, in the context, Mark has been telling us about the controversy between Jesus and his enemies, going back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. Then all of a sudden, you have this story, which appears to be a story about a widow who gives her last two pennies at the temple... And then chapter 13, you have the destruction predicted by Jesus of the temple. We'll talk about that next weekend. So we'll be talking about prophecy next weekend. Does, does Mark like put this story here because he thought that on a Sunday a pastor might need to preach on tithing? And this might be a good time to do it? No, this story fits very well in the context. I don't want to take away from the widow. I don't want to take away from her sacrifice. I don't want to take away from her faith in God. And I don't want to take away from how God would have responded to her. But this story is not about how to give. This story is about the abuse of the religious leaders toward this woman that compelled her to give the last two cents that she had. See, what do you mean by that? Look at the verses earlier that we talked about. They love to parade around in their flowing robes. They love the tension. They wanted the best seat in church. They wanted the, they wanted the head seat at banquets. They loved the praise of men, and they devoured the household or cheated widows out of their living. Then you have a picture of a widow in the temple. Jesus grieved. He said, my, sheep, my people are like sheep without a shepherd. You're supposed to be looking after this woman, but you extort the woman instead. You should make sure she doesn't have two pennies left in her life. Yet you will advocate that she go give her two pennies for your own benefit. Let me show you what I mean. Remember earlier, 
When Jesus distilled the law to two great commandments, love God wholeheartedly and your neighbor as yourself, if you were reading with me carefully when Jesus was describing verse 38 and following how hypocritical the religious leaders are, he said that they love. How they love the seats of honor. These guys don't love God, they love themselves. And they use people to benefit themselves. So they don't love God wholeheartedly, and they certainly don't love people. They use people. They extort people, especially poor, vulnerable people. Still happens today, doesn't it? Come to my miracle crusade. Send me a $1,000 seed offering. Do you know who shows up at those crusades? Do you know who sends their $1,000 in? It's the poorest people. Hoping that somehow, if they do that, they'll get blessed. Instead, they're being taken advantage of. That's what these guys are doing. That's why in, in, in uh, Mark chapter 9 that we looked at last weekend, Jesus said to his disciples who were arguing about who's the greatest, he said, if you want to be great, you must be least. He put a child in front of them. Remember last weekend? He put a child in front of them. And if you missed it, you can go online and watch it, by the way. He put a child in front of them and he said, your job in the kingdom is not to go up but to go down to lift up the least of these that's your job he said it would be better for you to put a millstone around your neck and drown in a pond than cause one of these little guys to stumble well women widows in particular were some of the most vulnerable people of the culture and these religious leaders are causing them to stumble they're taking advantage of them for their own benefit no wonder Jesus said, woe, woe to you, Pharisees, hypocrites. Because of what you do, what you cause to happen in their lives, which raises the question, how does this apply to us? We've unearthed this whole thing. We've seen how bad these guys were. What, what warning is there in this for us? What, what are we supposed to take away from this? Same thing that Jesus expected the disciples take away from it. And I've broken it down to some, some takeaway points, and I'll put them up for you. And because there's so many, we'll either put them on the website or send an email out with these on there for you in case you can't get them down. But here's the first takeaway. Our lives are not our own. They belong to God. He created and purchased us with his blood. Our lives are not our own. They belong to God. He created and purchased us with his blood. Do you know your life's not your own? My life's not my own. It belongs to God. Number two, this church, Whitdale, is not our church. It does not belong to the board. It doesn't belong to the staff. It doesn't belong to the membership. We belong to Christ. He purchased us with his blood and he created this community by the power of his Holy Spirit. Amen? Amen. It's his. It's his. It belongs to him. See, the problem in this passage that Jesus is having comes down to ownership. Ownership. When you, when you own something, when you think you own something, you, f you feel like you have power and authority, don't you? Money, money is power and authority these days. And when you have ownership, you have a sense of entitlement. 
And when you have ownership, the tendency is to control. Um, these men, these religious leaders, were encroaching on God's property. Our backyard is a hill, mostly. And it slopes down, it touches the property of three neighbors. And a couple of years ago, one of our neighbors started encroaching on our hill. They started landscaping it, digging it up, and putting trees randomly on it, and planting wildflowers, and even had the nerve to ask us to help pay for the wildflowers. <laughs> so I had to find a way to approach them nicely, in case they attended Wooddale or something like that, you know. So <laughs> I can't possibly know all of you. And try to let them know that's our, that's where you're, that's part, that's our hill. And I don't know why you haven't asked permission, but you really need to. And it do, didn't do any good. The next year they planted more trees. So I had to hire a surveyor to come out because you can never find the property pins. And I had the whole thing staked out and I went to Menards and I bought these massive stakes. You can't miss them. You got like this big ball on the end of them. And I pounded those things down so it's really clear where our property line is because I heard that where we live in that community, if you have property that's not developed and you let it go and your neighbor kind of does stuff with it, eventually they can claim it as their own. So I thought, well, that's not going to happen. So I marked it out really clear, and the good news or bad news is they moved last year. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> I did pray, though. And maybe that's why, I don't know, anyway. We do that with God, don't we? We encroach on God's property all the time. Everything we have is His. Everything we have is His. Our marriage, our family, our kids, our friends, our business, our associates, our, our church, everything is his. And we get in trouble when we begin to believe and behave like it's mine. Which leads to another principle. We therefore have no authority except that which God gives us to fulfill his purposes. God does give us authority as husbands, as wives, as parents, as bosses, as whatever he does in church he gives us certain authority but it has to be exercised on his behalf for his glory not for our own and that's where we get ourselves in trouble which leads to another principle and that is that God's great purpose for our lives ultimately is that we love him wholeheartedly that's the bottom line why we exist and he gives us power and authority so that we can love him wholeheartedly and listen so we can love each other especially the least of these you ever thought about that? Everything you have has been given to you to love God more and to love others more. It's just a different way of looking at things, isn't it? That's not an ownership principle. <laughs> I own this to bless you. I, I, God's, I need God to keep helping me with that in my life. Last principle here. God demonstrated how he wants us to love by going, what? I'm sorry, by giving his son as a sacrifice for our sins. Beautiful, isn't it? That's what it means to live like Jesus. So hard to do in a materialistic world. So I came up with this last little mantra for you, and we've been using this throughout the series, this, this style, at least the sermons I've done. And it goes simply like this. 
by God's help, because I can't do it on my own, I aim, I aim to daily remember that my life, church, and the lives of other human beings are not my own, but, but they belong to Christ. They belong to Christ. And I will commit daily to loving God more sincerely and loving others the way I want to be loved. You know, if we live that way, we change our lives and change our community and change all our relationships, wouldn't it? It only takes a few people to start living this way to bring the kind of change that God can do. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we humble ourselves before you today. Father, a message like this is hard to take. It's easy to, to look at those religious leaders and judge and criticize them. But then, Lord, we turn the mirror around and we look at ourselves and we see our tendency to take ownership of all kinds of things. And perhaps there's something in our lives right now today you're wanting us to release to you. Something, Father, that, that is taking the love that you deserve away. And it's getting in the way of us being able to love others. We've gotten selfish, we've gotten greedy, we've gotten preoccupied, we've become worried. Father, we release to you our lives, we release to you our relationships, our possessions, our power. We just want to be satisfied with Jesus. We want to build our lives on you as our cornerstone. Help us as we sing that to you now in Christ's name.